This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The future just got blurry for 17,000 Coloradans who were brought illegally to this country as children. The Trump administration announced this morning that it will end an Obama-era program to protect them. Faced with a lawsuit from multiple states, Attorney General Jeff Sessions says DACA will be rescinded in six months. He says that'll give Congress time to figure out what to do about these so-called dreamers. Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman, a Republican, already knows what he wants to do, and that is to preserve DACA legislatively. We spoke Friday as this decision loomed. Congressman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with just a quick series of yes or no questions to help people understand your position on DACA. So first off, yes or no, you believe that people currently protected as childhood arrivals should continue to have that protection? Absolutely. Okay. Those who are applying for DACA right now, should they continue to be able to apply with the idea that the program is preserved? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm for the continuation of the DACA program. So let me put it this way. I sponsored the Bridge Act uh, at the beginning of the year. And what the Bridge Act does is it gives a three-year extension of the DACA program. In those three years, it's up to Congress to make a determination as to what a permanent solution is. And I think in those three years, that's more than enough time to figure out the immigration reform piece. And so that's what I've done. And and, then when I head back on the 5th of September, I will uh, do a discharge petition to force that for a vote. Let's talk about this discharge petition. The rules in the House and the Senate can get positively Byzantine. But the idea here is to discharge with the committee process and to force a vote on the floor of of this bridge act that you talk about extending DACA. Do you have the votes to do it? I think you need a majority, correct? Uh, so there would have to be Republicans voting for this, not just Democrats with you. Absolutely. If, if uh, Democrats hold, there, there are enough Republicans to put it over the 218 threshold to pass and get into the Senate. I think the support there is uh, in the Senate and I think we'll get it to the president, and I believe the president would sign it. So you believe that there needs to be really a, a legislative solution to this because it was handled through executive order. Is that what I hear you saying? Oh, yeah. I think that I, I don't think it's constitutional just to do it through an executive order. I think it has to be done through the, the Congress, and the court has said it as much uh, when uh, striking down the, the DAPA program. Uh, that was also done by executive order. The difference is that the DACA program is already in place and has been in place for quite some time. DAPA is Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, that other program you mentioned. So um, do you think that you'll have to do this maneuver? I read that Speaker Ryan actually went to the president and said, hold off on making a DACA decision. Do you have to do an end run around him, do you think, or what? Well, I've given a courtesy call to... uh, uh, the staffs of leadership and, and uh, Republican leadership and said, if the speaker or the majority wants to talk to me, leader wants to talk to me, I, I'd be happy to talk to him. But this is what I'm going to do. So I wasn't asking permission to do it. was telling them what, I, what I'm going to do. The pressure has to be there. Essentially, it's not just the president. It's really the attorney general for the state of Texas that would have to back down. Uh, and he has, in his letter that he sent to uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General for the United States, nine other Republican ger- Attorney Generals signed on to that. So, you know, it, it's not just the president that really needs to be. I, I don't, the president has no desire to terminate this program. Uh, it's really the specter of of raising the constitutionality of it. Um, right, by uh, states' attorneys general. The act. These 10 states. 
Your district is the most ethnically diverse in the state, has a large foreign-born population, including many undocumented immigrants. How much have you been hearing from constituents on this issue? A lot. (laughs) There's a lot of anxiety, particularly in the Hispanic community. These are children, young people that really play by the rules. I mean, they could have hidden the shadows, uh, you know, like some of their their contemporaries, but they came out uh, of the shadows to register with the federal government. And I, and I, it's just this a tremendous amount of anxiety about not knowing what the future is. Congressman, earlier you said that the Bridge Act is a way of buying time, really, so that Congress can address comprehensive immigration reform. And, and you seem to have little doubt that three years would be enough time to accomplish that. And yet it's been, uh, gosh, decades uh, that the country has been talking about changing its immigration system and has been unable to do so. What gives you confidence that three years is long enough to crack this nut? Well, there has to be a deadline to put pressure on the Congress to to act. And, it, and it's not necessarily comprehensive uh, immigration reform, although I think that would be good. This is about finding a permanent solution to deal with these young people who are participants of the DACA program. Even it's a legal status, a temporary legal status, it's really sort of a gray status because there's a lot of things that they can't do. I had a DACA recipient that recently wanted to go to the United States Naval Academy, graduated at the top of her class, but her parents uh, took her here illegally when she was just one year old from Mexico. She really doesn't know anything about Mexico. She grew up here. She went to school here. I think she ought to be able to serve the only country she's ever known. And so uh, we that that's not a part of DACA. That has to be part of a permanent solution. Uh, her DACA status will not let her... Uh, go to the United States Naval Academy, let alone enlist in the military. Got it. So it could be that this buys more time for a more targeted solution or perhaps a broader one. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman represents Colorado's 6th District, which includes Aurora. He hopes to force a vote on his Bridge Act, which would extend protections for people brought illegally to the United States as children. That conversation was recorded Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's take a step into the school lunch line. I eat salad in a orange. This is the cafeteria at the Denver Center for International Studies. You probably know how this works. Students grab a tray, pick their items. They get choices of hot food, vegetarian food, sandwiches. Then they go through a salad bar where they can make their own choices of fresh fruits and vegetables. Teresa Hafner leads food and nutrition services for Denver Public Schools. When we feel they eat healthy foods and they're able to learn better and they're not worried about their tummies. They're thinking about their lessons. At the end of the line, kids punch in an ID number. One, two, four, enter. The number links to a paid account. Last year, if families fell behind on their payments, kids would eventually get an alternative lunch, something bare bones like cheese sandwiches or graham crackers and milk. Critics said the meals left kids embarrassed and hungry. Well, this year, DPS has taken shame off the menu. The district has committed to serve a full lunch to every kid every day, no matter what. Superintendent Tom Bosberg joins me from his office to talk about that and some other issues facing the district. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Tell me more about why DPS decided to change this alternative lunch policy. 
I think it's part of our fundamental commitment to the whole child that we know unless our kids are healthy, they're eating healthy meals, they're getting exercise, they're socially and emotionally supported, unless we're supporting our kids as whole children, they're not going to reach their potential. It's important to note here that the vast majority of our school children are eligible for uh, free meals, uh, courtesy of the federal school lunch program. And it is important that every family uh, that is eligible does sign up for that. But we're committed to make sure, uh, again, that every child who comes to us for breakfast, because actually most of, we serve most children breakfast uh, every day in our schools as well, gets a healthy breakfast and a healthy lunch every day. The nonprofit Kids Giving 365 raised more than $17,000 to erase school lunch debt this year. Would you have made this decision without that money? Because it's a financial consideration, too. It is, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the, uh, the students who, who led the Kids Giving and, and, and generated that money and really pushed uh, this as an important area. What a fantastic example of student leadership. And I think they really made put put in very clear terms to us, we need to make sure we're feeding every kid every day. We can't be in a situation where um, a family, for example, that doesn't qualify um, for free meals or for whatever reason hasn't signed up for it, uh, where that child does not get lunch. DPS has said that rules around the National School Lunch Program were part of the reason for this alternative lunch policy, that sort of bare-bones lunch. Can you explain that? Yeah, they they are. You need to make sure that you're following their rules, which define who is eligible um, for free lunches, who's eligible for subsidized price lunches, and, and you're not supposed to subsidize someone who's not eligible uh, with money from someone who is, un- understandably so. So in order to do this, we've had to essentially reach into a different pocket of funds. Oh. It's really, but in the end of the day, it's just really not that much money. And I think the principle at stake here of ensuring that kids are fed, are healthy, uh, is more important than the dollars at stake here. What's your understanding for why DPS students went into debt for school lunches? I mean, is it that they can't afford to pay? Is it that parents forget? Uh, Did you have some sense of that? Uh, You you know, every kid is a different story. In some cases, their parents didn't fill out the form properly. Maybe you have a kid who's new um, to Denver. Maybe there's a a student whose family has really gotten into difficult financial situations. And so there's a series of different reasons. In some cases, it's also... Uh, with some of our immigrant families, right? There's such fear now in the community because of what the president is doing and what we're hearing out of Washington that's causing such fear in our immigrant communities that in some cases our immigrant families are are reluctant to sign up for programs like this. We never, ever ask for immigration status in Denver. It's actually against the United States Constitution, uh, according to constitutional law decision of, of the Supreme Court, But a part of this is fear. New Mexico banned alternative lunches this year. Uh, Do you see the need for a a similar statewide solution? And and I'll I'll just mention that Adams and Boulder Valley School Districts uh, already provided full lunches, even when families had overdue lunch balances, according to to Nine News. So there could be something of a patchwork uh, without a state law, I suppose. Yeah, I think it would be great to have consistency where every kid is is getting fed every day. I want to be careful about saying just because we do something, someone else should do it. You would not call, though, for a statewide law yourself? We would certainly support one. You would? Okay. 
I would like to wrap up with negotiations that themselves wrapped up uh, between the district and its teachers union. You reached a five-year contract agreement right before the Labor Day holiday weekend. All teachers, as I understand, will get a $1,400 boost in pay, uh, in part because it's getting so expensive to live in Denver. A big win for the union was a joint committee to review the teacher evaluation system. How do you think students and parents benefit from this uh, five-year agreement? Thank you. I think they'll benefit in a number of ways. First of all, to have a five-year agreement and have that stability, I think, is very positive. I'm very grateful for the partnership that we have uh, with our Teachers Association that has led to that five-year agreement. One of the most important aspects of the agreement is to target more money to our higher-need schools. One of the critical things that we have to do to provide the kind of equity and of opportunity in our city and our educational system is to ensure we have our, our strongest teachers teaching in our highest poverty schools with our highest needs kids. And one of the key parts of this agreement is that opportunity to provide a, a, a greater salary increase uh, for our teachers who are teaching in our higher poverty schools. Secondly, one of the, the, the center parts of the agreement is our agreement to form a leadership task force on the whole child, to work very closely with our teachers and community members to ensure we're having the strongest possible supports of the whole child. What, what does that mean, whole child? I think of, yeah. I don't think of a headless child, for instance. <laughs> no. When we talk about the whole child, it really means celebrating all the aspects of a young person, their academic abilities, but also their creative opportunities in arts and music, their physical health and in sports, their social and emotional uh, health through counseling. Uh, in some cases, their physical health through through nursing or mental health. Uh, they have trusting relationships. They're developing a level of emotional intelligence, which is such a important part of growing up and being not just a successful young person, uh, but a successful adult. I know that the union wanted more of that written into the contract and to have more teeth in a way. What do you say? Yeah, so that was, again, one of the compromises we reached. It, it is written into the contract that we will have this empowered task force. Does it have enough teeth? Lots of task forces get started and nothing <laughs> happens out of them. Yeah, I, I think it has. It does. And, and I think most of all, it has momentum. And again, I think the way that you impact positive change uh, is to really bring people together around a common vision rather than necessarily giving people a litany of rules that come from the center that people really spend most of their time figuring out how they're going to try and avoid and evade and get around. Superintendent, thank you for being with us. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Tom Bosberg is superintendent of Denver Public Schools. The recovery from Hurricane Harvey is only just beginning, and now there's Irma looming. Our next guest says at times like these, it can be hard to make a good donation to those most in need. Sharon Lipinski of Loveland advises people on how to make their charitable giving go further, even if they don't have much to give. Her new book is called 365 Ways to Live Generously. And Sharon, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So reports coming out of Houston and broader Texas and Louisiana uh, say that shelters need everything from blankets to diapers and crayons, leashes and shampoo for displaced pets. But you want to signal some caution around donating things. Why is that? Well, there's just no good way to receive, organize, to get things that people give to where they're needed. We're talking about an area whose infrastructure has been damaged. So just logistically, having a place to store all this stuff 
And what we see in disaster after disaster is tons. And when I say tons, I mean literally like tons. Trucks and trucks loads of donations have to be thrown out. And we're talking about an area that already has a massive garbage problem. So I recommend to give cash because these organizations have relationships with companies, with food banks, with places where they can get what they need, where they need it for very reasonable prices. So giving cash is actually the most effective way to help charities. Yeah, I was looking back at past disasters. NPR covered some in which uh, donated goods just sat in some cases on runways at airports and went undistributed. And you said this is an area that already has enough stuff to clean up. They do. And with all of the water, there's always the risk of things getting wet and staying wet, which means mold and rot. And now it becomes a health hazard as well. So uh, so we're seeing people who want to do more than donate, perhaps heading to the disaster to help. Some thoughts on that. So giving time in that regard. Well, you want to work with an organization that has the capacity to organize that. You're talking again at Nary where the infrastructure is decimated. So getting down there can be dangerous. You can cause uh roadblocks. It sometimes means that some areas get more help than they need and other areas don't. So if you have skills to give, medical skills, reconstruction skills, then work with an organization who can facilitate that. Otherwise, again, you're best off just giving cash. You say that too about giving cash, that it's good to connect with an organization already on the ground where a disaster has happened. Uh, that those are the folks who know the community and who may know the needs. How are you looking at Harvey and, and whom to give to? So I like to look at two different areas in a disaster. One is an immediate donation and one is a long-term donation. Mm. So, for example, uh, the NPRs recently highlighted the diaper bank, which is providing immediate uh, sanitation needs for families. But in a disaster like Harvey, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, years and years of recovery. So partner that immediate need with something that's going to go to long-term, like the Harvey Relief Fund. Interesting, because there is often an infusion of cash right after a disaster, And then that must taper off after a while, even though the needs themselves may not. Yeah, something else is going to be in the news. We're all going to forget about it. So that long-term need is just as important as the immediate needs. How can people know their money is going to the need they want to help with? Uh, Is it a question, you know, that often comes up of looking at a charity's overhead? How much is spent on administrative costs? Should I demand some sort of accounting of where my money has gone beyond that? That is a difficult question. And it's it it really kind of gets to the heart, I think, of what is one of the most fundamental in misunderstandings about charity, which is how much of my money is going to a cause. And we think that's the most important thing, but your money can go 100% to the cause and still be 100% wasted because good charity takes money. We need employees. We need trained employees. We need software programs. We need to track who's gotten help, what impact that help had to receive. So I think the more important question to ask is, what impact are you making? How do your costs compare to other charities doing similar work? Do we think those costs are reasonable? So overhead in and of itself, you're saying, is should not be my only 
you know, uh, determination. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really a question about impact. What programs do you have? What impact is that program having? And how do you know that? Right. You encourage people to call charities, not just to scan their websites. And I suppose ask some of those questions you just raised. Oh, Calling charities is my favorite strategy because the website is a carefully constructed message. And that's great. They should have a good website. But when you call, you get to get more of a feel for what they're like on a daily basis. One, do they answer the phone, I suppose? Absolutely, which surprisingly doesn't happen as much as you would think. Or do they respond to emails? How passionate are they? How well can they talk about it? So you can really find out a lot of information by talking. And you might ask in that phone call... How much of my money might go to relief for Harvey or something like that? You would absolutely do that. Again, understanding uh, it's a difficult question for charities to answer and how they calculate those things may make it difficult to compare it with another charity. Uh, There are any number of charity rating sites. I think of Charity Navigator, GuideStar. Where do you turn among those? All of them. They all do something a little bit differently. Uh, So they're a great source to GuideStar has the financials. Charity Navigator is looking at their own criteria. GiveWell is evaluating programs that make in their determination the biggest impact. So I like GiveWell too. They're all doing a little bit something different. So I suggest consulting all of them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Sharon Lubinsky of Loveland, who advises people on how to make their charitable giving go further. She's author of the new book, 365 Ways to Live Generously. And I, I want to talk a bit about having an emergency donation budget, which is something you raise in this book. What is an emergency donation budget? Well, there's never a good time to give, right? There, But there are lots of necessary times to give. So what we like to do is we like to... What do you mean there's never a good time to give? Well, I don't have piles of money lying around my house. I don't know if you do, but (laughs) (laughs) money is always, you know, a scarce resource. It's always accounted for for a certain thing. So a disaster happens and you look at your budget and you're like, well, what do we give up? Well, if you're budgeting for that, then you have an account that you can call and, and you can use. So in the way that we have a savings account for, you know, if the tires go out on your car, you think you should have a charitable savings. Absolutely. Interesting idea. You've also written something about something called Change Gangs. Can you tell us what Change Gangs are? Well, Change Gangs is my labor of love. It is a virtual giving circle. And giving circles are actually really simple. It's a group of people who pool their donations and we donate together as a group. So actually, there are hundreds of giving circles across the nation. They're probably as old as civilization. Yeah, it's almost like a book club, but for charity. Yeah, it is similar to that. Or an investment club where, you know, you pool your resources. And so instead of giving $25 by your yourself, we're giving thousands of dollars together as a group. And the group decides where that money goes together. That's right. So we have a donation committee. A member will nominate a charity. We research it, and then the members get to read about them and then vote on where they think their donation is going to make the biggest difference. But as you say, this idea has been around for some time. So how is it changing in a world where we don't necessarily all have to be in the same room together to give? Yeah, well, that's the fun thing is that uh, my husband was in the Army. We moved around a lot, so I couldn't have a traditional giving circle. So I thought, well, let's make it virtual. 
because we can just meet online through teleconferences and we do it all via email. And that's part of what these change gangs are. Yes. How many people are in your change gang? Well, we have three different circles, one around ending poverty, one around helping veterans, and one helping pets. And we have 18 members in pets and poverty, and we have 10 members in our veterans giving circle. It's interesting. So these could be uh, developed around a theme, uh, around an issue, or I suppose that issue could change for the group. What's, what's the power of getting people together to do this as opposed to 18 people just giving individually? Well, I think there's two big reasons. One is the, like we said, we can donate a lot more as a group than we can alone. Second is that good philanthropy is actually really hard. It takes time to review charities. It takes time to compare programs. There has, there's a historical knowledge that begins to develop as you learn more about your cause and what actually makes a difference. And that is a lot to ask of one person. So you can donate by yourself and you can either cross your fingers and, and hope it does a good job or you can do all that work on your own or you get a team. There's no reason you have to donate alone. And then there's some division of labor into the investigation of a charity or of a particular cause. Uh, how would you go about creating something like this? It can be as simple as you and I sitting right here and say, hey, let's we both care a lot about pets. Let's pool our donations. So it can be very small and informal families, a few friends, or you can take it as big as you want. There are giving circles donating hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, supporting their community through like um, wanting to build gardens or uh, playgrounds, things like that. So you can really take it wherever you want to go with it. And if you want to make it virtually, where would you begin? Again, begin by getting a few friends, agreeing on some ground rules. How are we going to how much are we going to give and how what are our rules for giving that away? Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Sharon Lipinski of Loveland has written 365 ways to live generously. She maintains what she says is the largest repository of information about the country's charitable giving circles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Pueblo City Council is frustrated with the local power company, Black Hills Energy. So much so, they may end the city's agreement with the utility. Puebloans pay some of the highest electric rates in Colorado, and now Black Hills wants to charge a million dollars more each year for the city's new LED streetlights. This is all happening against an interesting backdrop. Pueblo has committed to 100% renewable power by 2035. So lots of forces at play here. Reporter Peter Roper of the Pueblo Chieftain is on the phone with me. Hi, Peter. How are you today, Ryan? I'm good. And we'll get to this LED streetlight issue in a bit. But the city of Pueblo already had other issues with Black Hills Energy, uh, like the high rates. Just give us a little bit of background here, will you? Well, the tension between Black Hills and Pueblo Rapier started back almost from the beginning when in 2008 when um, the city's former utility, Aquila, um, went up for sale. Uh, the city briefly flirted with the idea of buying Aquila and creating its own municipal power company, but oh. basically backed away. Black Hills stepped in and bought it, and it was almost a perfect storm of, uh, of events to, to work against ratepayers. About the time Black Hills acquired the utility, the legislature was shifting away from coal-fired and saying they wanted utilities to be gas-fired. 
And so pr- very quickly in the relationship, Black Hills had to uh, went to the Colorado PUC and asked for permission to build a $500 million gas-fired power plant and, or power station. And that really sort of began a series of rate increases that have continued. And as those rate increases have come on, as you pointed out, we pay very high rates. Um, now, in fairness to Black Hills, there's a, there's a cooperative right next door called San Isabel Electric that charges pretty comparable rates. But part of the problem is Black Hills only has about 94,000 customers in Pueblo in this region. And so whatever expense they go to, they have to spread over a fairly small pool of people. Yeah, certainly if you compared it, say, to the size of Excel, you mentioned the PUC, that's the Public Utilities Commission. And uh, what's the situation with these street lines, the street lights, rather, um, which apparently was like the last straw for the city? Well, um, something that's been going on, sort of a backdrop to the street lights, is, is uh, in, two, in 2016, Governor Hickenlooper appointed a, a Pueblo native, uh, a Denver lawyer named Francis Concilia, to the, um, to the Public Utilities Commission. And Francis has really been sort of a wonder woman um, as far as Pueblo rate pairs are concerned. She's, um, she's challenged Black Hills rate increases. She's required the PUC to have public hearings down here in Pueblo. And she's really pushed back hard against some of their, um, their requests for money. Just last year, Black Hills wanted an $8.5 million annual revenue increase. Um, and, and with Francis really giving them quite a number of tongue lashings during their October rate hearings, um, the PUC basically cut that to a million dollars, just a million dollar increase, which Black Hills is, is challenging in, in Denver District Court, as well as uh, Concilia's continued participation in that case. But so with that going on in the, in, in the background, yeah. um, Black Hills came forward this summer with a number of rate changes, um, not necessarily increases, but rate changes. And just two weeks ago, they hit um, city council with the news that they were going to ask for a doubling of what the city pays to use streetlights, basically from $1 million a year to $2 million a year. Now, the 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 real hard part of this, and, and a lot of people felt it was like a slap in the face, city council did, was that Black Hills was the technical consultant three years ago when the city went through a $4 million project of replacing old-fashioned sodium streetlights with the high-efficiency LEDs. So Black Hills was the city's consultant. They helped get the project done, and now suddenly they've come back and said, oh, by the way, we're going to double your bill eliminating any savings the city had acquired through, through making this important change. And I think that really sort of broke the camel's back and brought forward this idea on council that they really want to take a, a hard look at, at ending this franchise contract with Black Hills in 2020. In 2020, indeed. What, what would that mean? And isn't that also a potentially expensive avenue? Well, it, yes. And, and I think there's a big question mark hanging over this process at this point. Certainly, there's a, there's, I think Black Hills is facing an insurgency of sorts in the Pueblo area. Hmm. Um, Ratepayers don't like them. They keep getting hit with um, more expenses. And they also can be... Um, Pueblo's, Pueblo's low-income community has had to deal with some pretty hard um, disconnect policies and things like that. So there's a strong feeling to get out from under Black Hills at, at the first opportunity. Now, is that possible? That's the big question mark. Um, 
if, if, if the council would say, we don't want to continue this franchise contract, it doesn't mean Black Hills would go away. Black Hills would have to continue to be the city's electric provider, but there would, there would no longer be that, that contractual arrangement. And as far as city's council is concerned, they would feel like, well, we're going to go out and look at other opportunities. And we have a very robust, renewable community here in Pueblo that says, give us a chance. We'll try and create some other opportunities. We can end this. And I suppose this connects to some extent to the commitment that the city has made, this resolution to use 100% renewable power by 2035. Uh, What's the plan to make that happen? Well, I don't think there is a plan at the moment. I think that's more of a hopeful goal. Uh, As I said, when the renewable community came to city city council and said, could you endorse this as as our goal, um, they were happy to do it, not because they saw necessarily a path to get there, but they saw it was a path away from Black Hills, and they were happy to say, yeah, we'd like to get away from Black Hills if we can. So it's more of an ideological um, statement of where they would like to be. I don't think they necessarily see a path there at the moment, but it just once again reflects back on this uh, fairly tense relationship between Black Hills and the community. Indeed, and the community would have to vote on severing those ties with Black Hills, correct? Yes, they would. They, the city, uh, they, they had to agree that it was a citywide vote to agree to the, uh, the franchise in 2010, and it would take a citywide vote to end it. But that, that seems like a foregone conclusion in, in the current atmosphere. So what does Black Hills say to all of this? Because as you point out, they are facing expenses, this conversion to gas, and they don't have as many ratepayers as some of the larger utilities to spread that cost out over. Uh, what, what have you heard from the company? Well, the, comp- the company's chief defense is that, look, um, we stepped in, we, we acquired um, the right to provide power to Pueblo. Everything we've done, all of our expenses, we've had to take to the Public Utilities Commission for their oversight and their approval, and we've done that. Mm-hmm. So everything we've done is lawful and, and deemed necessary by the PUC. Now, if you, if you ask uh, Frances Concilia, her opinion on that, she would say that for far too long, the PUC has been nothing but a rubber stamp for the investor-owned utilities like Black Hills and XL. She would argue and has argued that there's a lot of um, costs that the utilities pass on um, to ratepayers. They don't have to. They could easily give to their investors instead, but why not maximize profits? You've also got a situation where you have a fairly good-sized low-income community in Pueblo that has to deal periodically and, and well, no, deal constantly with, with rate cut, um, service cutoffs, some pretty harsh policies on getting reconnected again. So, you know, Black Hills can say everything we do, we get the blessing of the PUC, but I think the community largely feels that um, they, they try and maximize profits at every opportunity. And that that is to carte blanche, that authority. We're speaking with the Pueblo Chieftains Peter Roper about some of the interesting stories around energy in Pueblo at the moment. And uh, another utility, Excel, operates at the coal-powered Comanche generating station in Pueblo and is looking at um, uh, moving you know, to cleaner power sources. What does that mean for the city? Well, that's, there's some irony there, because Comanche is this big power plant that sits on the south side of Pueblo. Now it's, it's now three units, um, three coal-fired units. And for years and years, Comanche actually provided Pueblo with electricity. Uh, there was a middleman, in this case it was Aquila, um, which was the city's utility, but it basically bought the electricity from the big power plants we could see right actually on the horizon on the south side of town. 
One of the problems for Pueblo ratepayers is that shortly after Black Hills bought um, Aquila in 2008, Comanche announced, uh, XL announced, they weren't going to sell any more power to Pueblo. So even though we have these two, we have this big coal-fired power plant down on the south side of town, we don't get any power out of it. Um, now, we have one customer in Pueblo, um, Everest Steel Mill, which does get, get power from Comanche. But what Comanche, what XL has now announced is that they intend over the next oh, 10 years or so or less to um, dismantle units one and two, which are coal-fired, and look for um, renewable uh, natural gas, other options to provide power out there. Yeah, than, that's than, than the, that, exactly. Which, in one sense, reinforces what the renewable community has been telling city council: Look, give us a chance. Um, well, there, there's going to be new options in the, on the horizon, which council would love to see, as and ratepayers would love to see. But it's but it's still uh, it's still a little bit of an unknown um, what what that new energy future is going to look like. And, and that could result in in some jobs lost in the area, correct? About ninety jobs are would be currently are currently involved in in uh, units one and two. I think Excel would tell you there's going to be other jobs created in this process. They're not just going to let the site go. They would uh, they would replace whatever they dismantle with with other energy sources, whether it's renewable or or wind or whatever, or even natural gas fired. So I think most folks are looking at it as sort of a job exchange, old old technology old technology jobs for perhaps some sort of new new energy jobs we don't know um it's that's that's still part of the whole new horizon of what uh, what future uh, energy is going to look like yeah some seismic shifts it sounds like coming in the decades ahead peter thanks for sharing your reporting with us you bet it's the pueblo chieftains peter roper covering the pueblo city council's dispute with black hills energy and there's a link to his reporting at cprnews.org the Denver Broncos season opener is less than a week away. They take on the L.A. Chargers Monday night. While both rosters include rookies, the most notable first will happen in the broadcast booth. Beth Moens of ESPN will become the first woman in 30 years to be the play-by-play announcer for an NFL regular season game. And she is on the line with us. Welcome to the program, Beth. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I'm uh, looking forward to, to coming to Denver in a few days. You are used to asking players about their big milestones on the field. I wonder how you're feeling about your big milestone right about now. <laughs> um, you know what? I've, I, I have come to appreciate and embrace um, uh, the significance of the moment. Um, but honestly, Ryan, you know, I, I've worked hard my whole life to talk about sports and so that is the, the thing first and foremost on my mind is the game. Um, but I do understand that there are, there are a lot of, uh, young people watching and a lot of women watching where, um, you know what, if, if it, I can give them something positive to look forward to or encourage anybody out there who has a dream to, to go ahead and chase it, uh, that, then that's great. This is something I've wanted to do ever since I was a little kid. So, um, it's a it's an exciting time. Yeah, you say that you've been working really your whole life to talk about sports. What did that look like when you were young? Uh, I, I grew up in um, in Syracuse, New York, and I had three brothers. And my mom was a big sports fan, and my dad was actually a high school basketball coach. Um, so you can imagine our, our days were pretty full um, with uh, with wiffle ball and kickball and 
football and we had a big basketball rim right out in our driveway growing up. So, you know, all the kids in the neighborhood, we were all big sports fans. And, and I actually, while I was playing all those games, I would just have a running commentary going. I was already working on my, my play by play, even as a youngster. Ah, and how good were you back then? Uh, I probably was still a little raw. I needed some work to do. <laughs> we should say that uh, long way. Monday night won't be your first time doing an NFL game. You've been calling Oakland Raiders preseason games for the last two years. How crucial was that mm-hmm. experience to, to landing the Monday night gig with ESPN? Oh, you know, I, it, it's not always popular in other AFC West uh, cities, but I will always be grateful to the Raiders. That <laughs> um, You know, they gave me a chance, and, and I've always thought that no matter what industry you're in or how competitive it is, you don't need millions of people um, to get a job. You need one or two or a handful of people that think a little differently, that will ask a new question and, you know, I am forever grateful to the Raiders for not asking, well, why should a woman do this? They asked, well, why not? We think she's the best person for the job, and, and we want her to be a part of our our team and our family. And so I, I think that certainly opened the door to other opportunities around the NFL. I really like your voice, and we can only hear sort of a limited range of it because you're on the phone with us. So why don't we listen to a clip from one of your Raiders games? In his four games last year, he's got two tonight for 25 yards and a touchdown. Crabtree on the outside. Nice cut for the pylon, and he's in. Touchdown, Raiders. 13 yards. And a dance move to get rid of a defender. A dance move. Do you come up with that language on the fly, or do you have like a storehouse of poetic ways to describe what's happening? You know, I was an English major actually uh, growing up and and have always loved a a catchy turn of phrase, or in that instance, uh, I'm a big fan of alliteration. And um, while I don't prepare anything ahead of time, um, I do, uh, on occasion, spend a moment um, with my head buried in a thesaurus just to, <laughs> I love finding more descriptive words, if I can, to describe um, a particular moment or a particular phrase. So um, I, I do take a little bit of pride in, in trying to find, you know, on the fly, off the top of my head, the right way to describe the action. Oh, that's wonderful. What's a word you'd look up in a thesaurus to try to say differently? Oh, boy. Um, well, you know, for example, I love the word moxie. moxie. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a couple of, of a lot of different ways, really, even just to describe a pass, I think, in your mind. You know, and, and my background originally was in radio, where you have to be much more descriptive. Um, you can pass it. You can sling it. You can float it. You can rifle it. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways, I think, to um, describe a pass without getting too flowery or without getting too um, far away from the fact that a pass is still a pass. So did you apply for the ESPN gig or did they approach you? Uh, well, I, I've been working at ESPN for you know over 20 years now and have, and have been a part of their uh, football family. And so they um, you know, they gave me a call. I heard from my boss and he said, hey, we'd really uh, like to uh, get you on our team for the second Monday night football game. And I said, absolutely. I'd love to do it. Nice. 
We should say that the yeah. first woman to call an NFL regular season game was Gail Searins, who called the Seahawks yes. Chiefs in Kansas City for NBC in the final week of the 1987 season. Uh, I understand you've been in regular contact with her since you were named to Monday night's game. She is actually on my, um, I have a little call list here that, of people that I need to try and reach out to in the next few days. And she is, she is in the rotation right now. Um, I, I got to know Gail uh, a few years back. Her daughter was a very good volleyball player. And when I was calling the volleyball national championships, I had a chance to spend uh, some time with Gail and get to know her. And I obviously knew what her background was. Oh, wow. Just a great lady. Just a great lady. And I'm actually, I'm really happy for her too. She's gotten a, um, a lot more attention this summer because of what she did and the path, the trail that she blazed, you know, all those years ago. Yeah. 30 years ago. Are you surprised it's been 30 years since this has happened again? Um, obviously just from a selfish standpoint, I would have loved that it happened earlier <laughs> for yourself. But, yes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's, it's a role that I think traditionally, uh, not a lot of women have either been drawn towards, um, Ryan or encouraged to pursue. So if you think about the landscape, most women are reporters or studio hosts, or now we're starting to see a lot more analysts even on men's games. So, um, you know, while I, I, it's, it's too bad it has taken 30 years, we're already starting to see more and more women in the play-by-play side of things, and, and I don't think it'll be as long after me. If you get the chance to pick Gail Searin's brain, what would you want to ask her ahead of Monday? I, I think just um, a description of what it's going to be like when you're there. Um, obviously, I've called you know uh, hundreds of football games over the course of my career, but the Monday Night franchise is is special and it's unique, and it's something I've watched and been a fan of my whole life. So, just to be able to control your emotions in that moment, I think, and to you know keep your focus on the game. That that that's what I you know I, I, I'll ask Gail a little bit about since yeah. she's been through it. She has any tips for you in that regard? You'll also call a number exactly. of of games for CBS this season. But on Monday for yes. ESPN, you'll be working with Rex Ryan. Uh, he's a longtime NFL head coach, most notably with the New York Jets and Buffalo Bills. Uh, through the years, he's been bombastic in news conferences, not afraid to speak his mind. But he's a rookie <laughs> mm-hmm. in that broadcast booth. Um, what do you have to do to get the color and the candor out of him while yes. being mindful of his you know, relative inexperience? Well, first of all, I have to appreciate your use of bombastic and the alliterative color and candor. I love it. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the big thing with Rex is um, allow, help him get to where he wants to go. I think that's a big part of the play-by-play announcer is to sort of steer the conversation and drive some of the conversation we obviously hope it's a great game, a competitive game, and we get a chance just to talk a lot of football on the field. But there are also moments, I think, where um, that color and candor of, uh, candor of Rex can really shine through because he's got great stories to tell. He knows so many of these coaches and these players, and that's part of my job, I think, on Monday night is to make sure that we get the most out of him and, and he gets to – to be himself and do his thing. And that you obviously got get the opportunity to talk a lot of football. How closely have you been following 
uh, the Broncos during preseason, and have you gotten to spend time with them? Well, I did get a chance to spend some time with them, and I've been in contact with some of the people that cover the team. Um, like a lot of your listeners, I was very surprised that T.J. Ward was released. Um, somewhat surprised that Brock Osweiler is back in the fold. So that that gives us a few more conversation pieces for sure mm. um, during the course of our broadcast. And I, I think this is a big game right out of the gate for the Broncos because – it looks like Kansas City and Oakland are going to be strong again in their division. And so the Broncos and the Chargers, you got to make sure you win both of these games head-to-head, I think, if you want to have a chance to compete for the division title. Well, Beth, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Break a leg. Break a vocal cord. Thank you. Beth, no. <laughs> Beth Mowens will become the first woman in 30 years to do play-by-play for an NFL regular season game when she calls the Broncos Chargers game next Monday night for ESPN. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.